Dwayne talks about, he thinks with no-till, that we may have just stopped the bleeding. To really go the next step and improve our soils, we probably need to have perennials worked into our annual crop rotation. And so we're, we're trying that in a couple different ways. Uh, we're really just at the beginning of these experiments. Welcome to the Soil Health Labs podcast, engaging ranchers, farmers, and researchers in the pursuit of healthy, functioning soils. Welcome back to another episode in the Soil Health Labs podcast. If everything goes to plan, this will be our second episode of this new year. I am Barrett Self. And I'm Buzz Clute. Still grateful to be here in 2022. Buzz is still with us. Still with you. <laughs> uh, well, not only is this the second episode of the new year, this is our second episode with Dr. Cody Zilverberg, researcher at Dakota Lakes Research Farm in Pierre, South Dakota. And this episode will be featuring more on perennials, right, Buzz? Correct, yeah. So Cody is talking a little bit about integrating perennials into uh, annual rotations, which is not always easy, especially from a research point of view. And then we also talk about some of their work where they replanted um, native uh, species into a pasture that was essentially completely overrun with invasive cool season grasses. So, you know, they have, um, they have quite a bit of acreage there where, w that they've treated in different ways. And again, this is uh, really good to see and available um, uh, for people to see, not only on the virtual field day, but if you've got a group that would like to go, um, Dakota Lakes, I believe, will be very accommodating in educating folks about that. And as always, with any of the guests we have on this podcast, you can click down to the show notes and learn more, uh, specifically about Dakota Lakes Research Farm for this one, and with Dr. Cody Zilberberg. Uh, Buzz, do you have anything else before we hop in? Yeah, just again, uh, the SDSU has a, um, a YouTube channel, and SDSU did a fantastic job of a virtual field day in 2020 where we know that both Dr. Dwayne Beck and Cody Zilverberg presented. Uh, so um, if you want to take a look, especially this time of the year, um, you, they did an awesome job and it's really informative. Beautiful. Well, we'll go ahead and dive into this second episode with Dr. Cody Zilverberg. We, we haven't really talked about this, but I think this is really important. Um, Cody is the introduction of perennials into an annual system. Uh, I know you had mentioned the example of the Argentinians, but uh, how are you guys at Dakota Lakes looking at the introduction of these perennial systems um, into the row crop land? Well, you know, we, Dwayne talks about, he thinks with no-till that we may have just stopped the bleeding, right? But that it, to really go the next step and improve our soils, we probably need to have perennials worked into our annual crop rotations. And so we're, we're trying that in a couple different ways. Uh, we're really just at the beginning of these experiments. One of them started six years ago. The other one just started this past year. 
So, you know, we don't, we have, we have a lot left to learn. I'll, we'll start out by saying that, but our plan is on, on our, one of our dry land rotations, we're going to have 15 years of annual crops and then five years of a perennial. And the first time we did this, we used switchgrass as that perennial switchgrass is a, a native warm season tall grass species. So it will, I mean, it, it can approach almost six feet tall with the, or, or, you know, under good conditions, maybe more, it might not quite reach that here in, in central South Dakota. And, but under, below ground, the roots will go even deeper than that. And so well, we think that by getting those roots way down there, uh, if you had a high water table, if you had salinity issues, we could draw that water table down and, and help address that and also draw nutrients up from deeper in the soil surface. So, so we think that's a, a great idea, a great way to start, but part of the problem is if we were only giving it five years, with a lot of these native species, they're a little bit slow to establish. Um, under good conditions, you probably, those first two years, your growth is not gonna be really maximized. You, know, you probably get to year three when you're finally finding that really optimum growth. And so, if we only give it five years, but the first two is not very productive, you know, that really, it's going to limit how much good we can do for our soil. So we're trying to figure out how we can make this happen faster. And one of the things that we have tried is uh, going back, I suppose it's been about seven years or no, this is a different experiment. So a few years ago, anyway, we planted switchgrass, this perennial warm season grass, right? with our wheat. So when we planted wheat in the fall, we, and we did tried it several different ways. We did two rows of wheat and a row of switchgrass, two rows of wheat, row of switchgrass. Another thing we tried was mixing the seed all together, switchgrass and wheat all together. Or we tried just planting the wheat and then later coming back and planting the switchgrass over top and just to see what worked. So then the wheat came up in the fall, it grew, you know, the next year we harvested the wheat in july meanwhile the the switchgrass had germinated in the spring and it started growing so when we harvested the wheat you know we kind of removed that canopy and now the switchgrass was able to get more sunlight and it grew up and, and it survived it thought, well this is this is neat right <laughs> this is this is this is kind of fun i wonder wonder what will happen next and so the next spring I went out there and I checked and sure enough, the switchgrass was still alive. It, it had survived the winter and the, the field was going to corn. So Dwayne decided just, we'll just plant the corn right through the switchgrass, which we did. And, and that corn, the switchgrass at, at early in the year, it was growing a little faster than the corn. Eventually the corn kind of caught up and passed the switchgrass. But even under that corn canopy, it survived. And we harvested the corn at the end of the year and the switchgrass was still green. And uh, it, so it had survived again. And so then we thought, well, we, we let it go over winter and it survived again to the next year. And then this year we planted canola into the field. And uh, that turned out to be a crop failure because of the drought with or without switchgrass, the, the canola failed. And now the switchgrass has been terminated now, but but we discovered that we could grow it alongside those annual crops for several years. And, and you know, so I don't have yield data on the canola because, of course, that, uh, you know, that failed either way. The corn, 
Uh, we found that the switch, the effect of switchgrass on the corn was, it's kind of like you've got some weeds in there, right? So it did drag our yield down a little bit. Where we had the best switchgrass, we lost about 27 bushels to the acre. But where our switchgrass seed rate was a little bit lighter, we only lost four bushels to the acre. So, you know, at this point, it's one experiment, you know, one set of conditions. We can't draw a lot of conclusions from it. But it's, you know, it's really piqued our interest in finding ways to to make this. That's to, to get it started, right? Just to get the annuals, the perennials started in the annual system. And then once you've got it started, uh, like with this switchgrass that we had for five years, we would, we part of the field, we would graze every year. Sometimes we'd plant peas into the switchgrass. So we added a little bit of diversity. And we also improved the nutritional quality for the cattle when they came through and grazed. And, you know, in terms of producing forage, we produced a lot of forage that way. And the other part of the field, uh, we, we harvested some of it for, uh, for seed. And so, you know, those, those are a couple of ways that you might work that uh, perennial into your crop rotation. Uh, okay, so a couple of questions here. The the switchgrass, uh, it sounds like it is uh, quite palatable as a forage, correct? So you're you're turning those animals in prior to, you know, at whatever four and a half leaf stage before it goes vegetative. Is that correct? Well, <laughs> there are people who will tell you that switchgrass is nothing but junk. <laughs> so, well, I, I know horse. I know horse people say that. So I, I was really curious yeah. about forage value, and if you have any experience with with horse folk, uh, because we're we're playing around with switchgrass over here, um, yeah. and uh, you know uh, we're thinking about talking to people with horses. Uh, and I was just surprised that the landowner that that I spoke to said, well, you know, switchgrass is poisonous to horses and I nearly fell off my chair. Yeah. Well, if I remember correctly from back in my graduate school days, I think it does cause photosensitization in horses. So it probably wouldn't be an option for horses. But OK. Uh, and it's in terms of its quality, the, the timing is everything. And okay. that's true for most forages. but. What we've found is that, you know, it's it's very nutritious early in the year. There's not much there. When you get to, and I've, I've got my my data sheets here in front of me, so I can even uh, make sure I tell you the truth here. Um, like a couple of years ago, when I measured the quality of our switchgrass on uh, the 11th of June, it was like 15% crude protein. So that's very high. That's great. But there wasn't a lot of growth yet on, on June 11th. On June 30th, the protein had dropped down to 10%, which is still, which is still good, you know. And that's for most classes of cattle, that would that would be just fine. And uh, they and the energy digestibility is good at that point, you know, around the end of June and early July. By the time for us, you know, it'll vary by location, but for us, by the time we get to August 1st, the quality has really gone downhill. And so the, both the protein and the energy, and they don't like it nearly as much. That, so uh, the, the timing of your grazing has a lot to do with it. And if we had, you know, if we grazed it lightly, you know, and maybe rotated and came back to it later, you know, maybe we could graze it a little bit longer um, because we didn't let it get too mature, you know, 
but uh, it's, you know, it might not be their favorite grass, but it is nutritious and, and they will graze it. Got it, got it. I, and, and well, and Buzz, sorry, I should I should throw one more thing in there though. You know, switchgrass became very popular partly because of people. We thought we we were going to be using it for biofuels. Maybe we still will. That hasn't materialized yet. But if we're doing it primarily for forage, uh, I would lean more maybe towards big, using big blue stem and using some mixtures. Using mixtures, but I'd make big blue stem probably a big component of that. And some of the other native species, maybe not as much switchgrass. Well, that's that's a good segue. To talk to us a little bit about your uh, your the, the native species, because you I, I noticed uh, you know when we were out there, you had some you'd taken over some land from the neighbor, um, and you had a number of plots out there with native grasses. Uh, talk talk to me a little bit, bit about that, because. Again, that's another thing. Um, I, I wanted to talk to you about uh, alfalfa in that rotation, but I, let, let's let's move on to the native grass experiments that you're doing there. Okay. Well, and I, I kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier. It's the pasture that was continuously grazed for a very long time, and it was mostly exotic cool season grasses like smooth brome and crested wheatgrass. So we wanted to transition it back to more warm season grasses, native warm season grass dominance, and especially using some of the tall grass species. Now we have uh, blue brome and Drion and sand drop seed out in that pasture already, but they're not very productive. So we were trying to bring in some yeah, the very short grasses. You know, we were trying to bring in some little blue stem, big blue stem, Indian grass, uh, switchgrass, side oats problem. Some more of those that that were absent or nearly absent or completely absent, right? So we tried some different experiments. For one, we did, uh, well, I said not really rotational grazing, but we would, because a lot of times we only graze each patch of ground once per year, right? So we would move the cattle on about a daily basis so that so that's not continuous grazing anymore. And the other thing we did was we we seeded part of the pasture with these native species, and then we used some herbicide treatments. Uh, we applied some glyphosate at uh, 20 ounces per acre in some strips. And so we ended up with a, like a, imagine a checkerboard of all these different treatments of combinations of chemical and no chemical and grass seed or no grass seed. And we've had five years now to look at how this has responded in those first two years that we did this uh, we didn't we had drought <laughs> and the seed we planted i mean it just looked like we had failed there were a few plants here and there that you could find and that was it and in that third year we finally got rain and all of a sudden bam there they were you know these where we had used glyphosate and seeded we got all of these tall grass species mostly big blue stem more than anything big blue stem uh they, they had they appeared and you know they came back in year four and they came back in year five and they're getting stronger and, and and bigger and so that's been very satisfying to see how that worked out now uh, we also found that if we didn't use the glyphosate the seeding was unsuccessful so basically there was too much competition from those grasses that were already established just switching our grazing management wasn't enough 
to change things over this you know short period of time. Now, if we if we did this over decades, maybe it would be enough. Um, we also found that where we sprayed the glyphosate, but we didn't seed, we weren't able to. These native species didn't come back, and so I think in our particular case, we didn't have. It appears we did not have a seed bank or a bud bank uh, of those native species still present. Uh, perhaps they died out long ago, right? In some, in the case of some ranchers, those species might already be present in their pasture, and so, so they. You're talking about a bud bank. You're talking about those apical buds that may not be visible you know from the road or from the truck but when you kind of get on on your hands and knees you might find some of those apical buds is that correct right yeah okay yeah. so some plants some some plants that are still alive but you you're not really seeing them yet you know holding on by the skin of their teeth yeah right and if you remove the competition all of a sudden it gives them a chance to to uh to flourish right and what we you know this chemical so we we applied the chemical early in the spring when the cool season grass were growing but the warm season grass were still dormant so you know that's and then we did the grazing the same way and we tried to graze hard in the spring before the warm season grass have grown very much yet to try really trying to hurt those cool season grass tip things in favor of the warm season grasses and not that we don't want any cool season grass but we needed more of a balance, right? And we needed to give an opportunity to these native warm season grasses to get established and get growing. And so, so basically opening up that canopy for the warm seasons to come through, right? Right, opening up the canopy. So the above ground competition, also the below ground competition, right? Gotcha. Yeah, just trying to tip the scales. Because, you know, if we, we remove the, the, the leaves, the photosynthetic, uh, material from those cool season grasses you know it's if we can and, and you know we graze them right really short it's it it's going to weaken that plant you know they their factory is gone and, and the whole plant is going to be a, a little bit weaker now you're not they're not going to die immediately right it'll take uh it might take many years to do that but that's yeah. our that's what we've been trying to do but yeah so so far we've and, and partly because of that drought that, that limited our success, but on on average, we've got about one of these tall grass species that we planted, about one of them uh, in every square yard. And so what we have now is a, a very diverse pasture. It's not as densely populated with those tall grasses as we would have liked, but uh, they are there. And I think with our management, I'm, I'm hoping that, that our management will help them to increase. You know, now that we do have some buds out there, now that we do have seed from these species going into the ground, hopefully our management will encourage uh, the recruitment of more of these tall grass species. Fantastic, yeah. And my understanding is that uh, when you've got those apical buds present, the the spreading of that forage is much uh, much more efficient through vegetative rather than seed growth is that correct especially if you encourage it through grazing yeah those buds you know they're they're connected to a mother plant right and so like big blue stem it will create 
rhizomes that can spread uh, up to about three inches. So they don't, they're not like Western wheatgrass, which, you know, can send shoots out a long ways from the, the mother plant, right? But but big blue stem, it's it's going to creep along much slower, but it's it's still connected to that mother plant, and and so it's uh, it's a bit stronger getting going than say that seedling, which is going to take several years, you know, to really uh, build its strength up and, and reach a, a good productivity. We'd like to briefly interrupt this episode for a little bit of an announcement. Yeah, well, Lynn Betts, who um, works with us as a journalist and writer, uh, has written a six-part series called Remembering the R's uh, on Rotate, Rest and Recovery. And in each one of these articles, he's featured a farmer or rancher in South Dakota. These um, articles are now in Tri-State Livestock News. So please go to Tri-State Livestock News and have a look at what they've said. We think this is a fantastic message that we've been able to put out there. So we hope that we're presenting a really balanced and effective way of starting to look at rangeland and then also farmland in the Rotate Rest Recovery Continuum. Yes, so click on over to Tri-State Livestock News and you can find that there. We'll also do our best to try to include those links in the show notes. And now back to the episode. When you planted your via seed, um, how long did you defer grazing before you you turned the animals in? Because, you know, I've heard again out here in the the southeast, uh, the standard would be five years to defer grazing. And that sounds like an awfully long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we really didn't defer grazing at all. Oh. <laughs> we we planted in 2017 and we yep. grazed it that same spring. So, but when we grazed it, uh, well, let's see, we, we put the seed in the ground in April, but in mid-April, and we grazed in may got it so but any but but it was so dry that i suspect we didn't have any seedlings probably even even up yet at that point okay so but you there was no grazing deferment yeah okay okay there's another thing that uh, you know okay go ahead but so we didn't we did not defer grazing, but we targeted our grazing to the season of the year when the seeded species were not growing or hadn't grown very much. They were very short and difficult for the cows to graze. I gotcha. So that's where you went in and grazed your brome grass and your Kentucky blue and yes, and, and cre- or you have brome grass and crested, right? That's those are yeah. the dominant cool season species. Okay. Uh, the 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 thing um, that I was curious about, and this is something where uh, I'm, I'm seeing or hearing, um, you know, across the state, there, there are, there's a diversity of opinion. Some folks sort of say we really want to uh, uh, graze those um, cool seasons hard. When you're talking about grazing them hard, are you talking about gra- uh, talking about grazing them to the ground? Or just grazing them down to six or eight inches so that you're opening up the canopy, because I guess well, well how about first answer that and then I'll I'll tell you what the motivation for that question okay. is. Okay. 
uh, we've been grazing them pretty much to the ground or as, as close as I can get the cows to the ground without me feeling too bad for the cows, you know. <laughs> got, it, got it. Okay. So it is really, you, you know, because I've heard the word abusing the cool seasons because one of the things that um, I've observed is uh, in, in lands where guys are not grazing those cool seasons to the ground, but maybe grazing to four, you know, between four and eight inches, leaving that canopy open uh, seems to have promoted a lot of the cool season. So we're talking um, the, the western wheatgrass um, and then seeing porcupine grass, needle and thread and green needle grass come through um, through a limited amount of disturbance. Um, it seems like I think my understanding of brome is maybe that growth point is actually below the growth point of things like western wheatgrass. Mm. So I, I have you ever considered that? I, I was just curious because this is <laughs> this is something that we're talking about as as we're trying to educate our, ourselves about the rangeland. Right. Uh, I'm afraid I can't help you very much there, but you know we we do have some. Western wheatgrass out there. I'm not aware of any porcupine grass in this pasture. And, you know, so what you say, it might, I, I, I don't know. It, it okay. may be true, but it's not something we've been able to, to test. And we're, you know, we've really focused more on the warm season grasses. And I know that some of, some of what we're doing it probably has been detrimental to some of those native cool season grasses uh, because we're really, you know where our practice is really to hurt the cool season grasses because that's what those exotics are and yeah. some of the native cool seasons are probably a collateral damage for us okay. got it got it yeah yeah well it's it's interesting um I, i've been very encouraged to see pastures where you've got a mix of both cool seasons and, and warm seasons and and my general impression is often that you know the, the 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 money kind of lies with with the with the uh, warm season grasses, uh, in in the sense of of the way ranchers look at it. But uh, there's there seems to be this awareness of some of the the cool season species. Uh, I know out west um, now this is not it's it's a it's not a, a grass, but they talk about winter fat. Yes. And uh, they say, you know, winter fat has started just to come back in, in lands where they've been grazing different times of the year and leaving long rest periods. And you should see these guys out in the West when you talk about winter fat, they break out into these huge smiles. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, I, it, it's great when you see uh, people managing land get excited about the plants that they have out there, isn't it? Yeah, they get real excited. Oh, we had 60 species, you know, they got real excited. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's real encouraging. Uh, you're you're an ecologist. Part of your job uh, or at part of your training is is ecology. So I guess that gets you excited when a producer gets excited. Sure. I, I want to circle back to a question I didn't ask earlier on. Um, uh, you were talking about switchgrass in the system. Uh, what about some a perennial like alfalfa? Obviously, it's a cool season. It's a cool season um, um, legume. But can you comment? Can you speak to that at all? Yeah. Well, we have. Uh, we're on our second time around on this 
dry land rotation where we're putting a perennial in. And this time around, we have established alfalfa in that field. I just got it established this past year. And our intention is to plant a mixture of the warm season tall grass species and maybe mid grass too, like little blue stem in with the alfalfa. So uh, by using alfalfa, you know, rather than just a, a switchgrass monoculture, which is what we pretty much had last time. So we'll have some more diversity there. Uh, the alfalfa will be, you know, as a legume, of course, it will be adding some nitrogen to the soil and probably the, the animal's diet when they graze it, or, or we may hay it too. Uh, you know, but the, the protein content, the digestibility will probably be higher. And so I think there'll be some benefits there to the animals from using that. Uh, it has a very deep root system, of course. So, you know, just like the, the switchgrass and the big blue stem, we expect it to be able to uh, go down deep to access nutrients and water. So those are, and then we, we're also uh, on one of our irrigated rotations. We just established a mixture of orchard grass and alfalfa as a as a perennial that will stay in that system I, about four years. Um, I'm not, I don't know if that's set in stone yet. You know the, the four years part, but we do have that mixture there. So with that, we are cutting for hay, and we will feed those bales to the cows on the same field uh, over winter this winter. Yeah. Okay. Well, that sounds boy. You guys have a lot of irons in the fire there. So <laughs> yeah. we'll see how they all work out. You know, this alfalfa and native grass thing. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have another question for you. Um, or this is the last question, unless what you say stimulates another question. So I appreciate your time. Um, there's a the, the phenomenon called pasture cropping out in uh, places like Australia, where you're growing you grow winter wheat and then um, your, uh, you, you have uh, warm season uh, perennials come up uh, after the winter wheat. Uh, that fascinated me, especially um, there's, a, there's a, I, I'm not sure if you know Nicole Masters, but I remember seeing a picture that she took out in Western Australia that where they had for 40 or 50 years been farming with uh, winter wheat uh, and they started applying um, compost, liquid compost in row uh, with the planting of the winter wheat. And what happened was they actually found that that compost actually stimulated the seed of their native warm season grasses. And so they farm with winter wheat and then they, they go ahead and uh, create a pasture for the summer and and so that gets that carbon flywheel going um uh, that that's my knowledge i don't know if you can speak to that and yeah. whether there are applications in a place like south dakota well it's it's a very intriguing idea and i would love to make it work here we you know Dwayne and i have been talking about how we might do that uh, we did venture into that a little bit well, with, like with the switchgrass and the pea thing, you know, I mentioned that earlier where we grew, but we grazed that, right? And so we never intended to harvest that, those peas for grain, even though they grew with the, the switchgrass. This year, this year, though, we did, we had an established stand of switchgrass that we planted peas into. 
and with the idea that you know the peas would climb up the switchgrass and then when it was when the peas were still you know maybe not quite dry but we could swath it and, and let them dry in the swaths and then combine the swaths to get the the pea uh, seed out of the the swaths and then we could bale the swaths of switchgrass and then and that would happen early enough in the year that the perennial switchgrass would then grow back and perhaps you graze that again perhaps you uh, perhaps you hay it or maybe you just let it <laughs> let it be for wildlife and ground cover and everything uh unfortunately uh a lot of our peas failed this year because of the drought so it didn't really matter if we planted it with switchgrass or, or not uh, that that turned into a failure so I, it's something i would love to explore more i think the particulars of which species which plant species we use will be you know that's something that's going to take a lot of trial and error probably to figure out in you know in this environment you know a lot of times we don't have enough moisture to grow a single crop so you know trying to do two in the same field one of them being a grain crop it's probably going to be pretty risky and but for you know the soil health benefits it, it would be fabulous if we could figure out a way to do it you know fairly reliably so I, hopefully i'll get to try some of those things out here in the future yep yeah well i i, I hope so too yeah um just sort of a data point from our side we had um, some row crop farmers here that put their switchgrass in uh, they put some switchgrass this was uh you know i don't know 15 years ago where switchgrass was going to be the new big thing uh you know for fuel and stuff and they put uh, uh maybe 20 or 30 acres into switchgrass and had this beautiful switchgrass come up and then you know nothing nothing turned out you know to, it, it wasn't viable commercially they didn't have a buyer and they turned it back into i think the next crop was soybeans and they said they've never seen soybeans like that so I would imagine that there's a mycorrhizal function that something like switchgrass or any native warm season grass would bring. Um, and I would imagine that if you've got a native grass that's already growing, that's your perennial, that's kind of almost like your insurance crop. Um, so even though you may have less yield from it on a forage basis, you're still going to get something for it, uh, even if your pea crop failed. Would that be a fair statement? well it's a it's a good assumption now what what we actually saw happened to us this year and this is it was extreme i mean the drought was it was really extreme but the switchgrass where we planted the peas into it looked very bad it it, it was you know right next to switchgrass without peas because we did it like real scientists you know we, we had replication and everything the switchgrass without the peas looked a lot better than with peas, and so, uh, and we didn't. We ended up not harvesting it for forage at all. But if we wanted to harvest it for forage, we would have gotten more out of the the straight switchgrass. Straight switchgrass. So, you know, I think this like it was an extreme year, but we probably increased our risk there. Okay. Got awesome. <laughs> yeah. Well, clearly, um, you know, nothing. Nothing is simple. Um, and, uh, you know, I really appreciate your, your intellectual humility by being able to say, no, no, I don't know. 
Um, <laughs> hopefully it was humble enough. <laughs> I, I, I think it was humble enough. Um, but, you know, it's, it's I, I guess I, I'm in awe of what Dakota Lakes has been able to achieve. I think, you know, where you've got a board of producers who have really initiated this. Um, and it, it's wonderful to see these things. It's wonderful to be able to, uh, in a podcast, be able to talk about some of the nuances rather than to say, oh, you know, swath grazing is the best thing in the world or cover crop grazing is the best. You know, there's always these things that one has to watch and manage. And if I've learned nothing about uh, managing livestock, especially in a place like um, South Dakota, it's uh, regardless of what your grazing philosophy is, the, the, the good guys are always looking at what are the what's the weather doing? What are the cows doing? You know, and so this, there's this sense of adaptive management. And I imagine that as we're starting to look at reincorporating animals into the system and looking at incorporating perennials into the annual system, uh, we're still going to have to manage adaptively, uh, even though I think the trajectory is going to be towards better soil health, more diversity, and hopefully establishing those markets that you were talking about for the terroir, the, 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 the flavor of that beef being something a little bit unique rather than, uh, say, something that is entirely um, finished, uh, you know, uh, somewhere away from the land. Tell us about how we can reach you, how we can read a little bit more about what Dakota Lakes is doing and what you're doing, frankly. Sure. Well, we have a website, dakotalakes.com. That's pretty easy to find. And you can, on that webpage, you can find a lot of materials, especially that Dwayne has written uh, about managing agroecosystems, for instance. And we have a YouTube channel uh, with a, a few videos there. Uh, and also, if you search on YouTube, it's not in our channel because it was done by SDSU, but uh, our field day from 2020. Uh, if you look for the Dakota Lakes virtual field day uh, from 2020, uh, you will find a, a series of videos that we did. And those, those are very well done. Uh, it's kind of a, you get a virtual tour. You know, you get to the, see the soils on the farm and not just see us uh, doing presentation. Also, if you go onto YouTube, uh, you can find Dwayne Beck and myself in, uh, where we have given presentations at you know, different conferences and things. And so those are the best ways. I think we have, you know, we're, we're just, we're, we do have a Facebook uh, page and I think we've just started a Snapchat deal. So we're kind of, we're kind of dipping our toes into the, the water of the social media stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, certainly, I think the influence of Dakota Lakes uh, can can reach further and further. You know, I, uh, I've I've heard of how Dakota Lakes have, has really influenced the 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 center of the state, and and you know, even to the point that we're seeing communities uh, really growing instead of shrinking, and that that excites me as well. So, yeah. Um, Cody, it's, it's been really good, and I really appreciate your spending so much time with us. Yeah, well, I appreciate uh, the, the chance to, to be on the podcast, because, of course, I mean, that's why we're doing this work. If, uh, we're trying to 
share share what we have learned and and I hope that it'll it'll do somebody some good out there. Well, I, I trust so, Cody, and uh, I really appreciate it. Don't be surprised if we contact you a little bit later to do another podcast. <laughs> okay. I don't know. I think I told you everything I know already. <laughs> <laughs> we might go into a little bit more detail, but yeah, that's it's been it's been good to it was good to visit with you at Dakota Lakes, uh, um, and uh, it's it's really good to be able to visit with you like this. Yeah, yeah that's good. All right. Yep, yep. You you have a wonderful weekend, and we will be in touch. Okay. Thanks. All right. All right. Bye bye. Okay, Buzz, our second go at a Dr. Cody Zilberberg episode. What do you think the biggest takeaway for the audience is here? Well, the biggest takeaway for the audience here is um, reintegrating livestock is, is not necessarily simple. It's not necessarily a straight line. We have lots of um, contentions with weather, but uh, ultimately uh, going this direction uh, is super positive for rangeland resilience and then ultimately for profitability. So if you're not looking at just next year or this season and looking at long-term management of your rangeland or farmland, um, look at reintegrating livestock either with annuals and or perennials it's it's it just makes sense because we're really mimicking nature here and, and when you're mimicking nature you're not spending all that amount of money on inputs including your own labor and time so it's 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 not only a money thing it's a lifestyle thing wonderful well buzz by the way do we know who the next our next episode is going to be with yeah, yeah, we do actually. Um, we're going to meet and spend a little bit of time with Jeannie Francis. Uh, she is a South Dakotan, but she spent a lot of time in the big city and then felt the pull of the homeland calling her and she's back in South Dakota, making a big difference. Very nice. What What is the uh, main topic of that episode? Well, you know, we talk about uh, landowners, and I think Jeannie would probably, in my books, be a model landowner. So she speaks, um, I think this topic will speak both to landowners, but also people who are potentially renters uh, of land. Perfect. Well, we'll have that episode for you guys soon. As always, check out the show notes to learn more about Dr. Cody Zilverberg, our guest from this episode. You can also learn more about free resources from the NRCS that are listed down there as well. And don't forget to remember the R's. Rotate, rest, recover. i tell you what, Buzz, we've got those down. we got those down now. I am Barrett Self. And I'm Buzz Clute. And keep it resilient. Resilient.